holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It is Friday, the day before Saturday, which is the day before Sunday, which is exactly the day that Wednesday was last week. And I know this because it was exactly the same as Tuesday the week before and Thursday, which is today, but also the previous Thursday and the Thursday before that. How are you? Are you well? Are you staying safe and healthy? I hope so. I hope you and yours are doing well. Are you staying sound of body and sound of mind? I think we're all having our moments, aren't we, with the mind? I'm having crazy dreams, really strange, vivid dreams about what's going on in COVID-19 and being being chased by the virus across the earth. And the virus took the, the form of a politician in the world that you really don't want to be chasing you. Uh, I don't need to go into it any further than that. I'm sure you can use your own imaginations. Coming at me, telling me it was the king. And I was like, no, you're not the king. I'm trying to get out of here. And then it ate a frog right in front of me. It ate a frog, just put the frog in its mouth and the legs were sticking out. It was awful. And then I discovered in my dream, of course, that the reason people were getting COVID-19 was because sometime in the past they'd had scarlet fever. And if we could identify everybody in the world who had scarlet fever, then we'd be able to uh, properly isolate those people and we could put an end to the virus and we could find the antibodies to make a vaccine, etc., 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 etc. Even being asleep, there's no escape from it. There just isn't. It's all encompassing. It's in the mind. It's in the news. It's everywhere you look. Everything you do is informed by uh, the virus and, and what's going on in the world. And I guess that's normal and understandable because, well, that's what life is right now. The main thing, though, is if you are safe and well and happy and healthy and uh, and doing okay. Uh, and I hope you are. I know it's a difficult time for, for lots of people. Uh, it's more difficult for some than others and uh, hopefully you're doing what you need to do to get through it as well as you can uh, part of that of course might be listening to this podcast and if you are thank you very much indeed for being here whether you're sitting upstairs in the bathroom with the doors closed away from everybody else in the house with your headphones on just looking for a bit of peace and quiet or if you're out walking with the dog or doing your little bit of exercise every day or or simply staring at the wall wondering where's that noise coming from how did this happen i just don't know maybe somebody's fucking around with your personal assistant your you know the siri or the hey google or the the truly evil one hey alexa that one that really evil one owned by that evil company. I saw lots of people talking about the Arsene Wenger autobiography uh, this week on Twitter. It's coming out in October, and people are online frantically trying to pre-order that book from Amazon. Uh, I know I'm a bit of a, a an advocate for independent bookstores, and I am, that's true. Having published a few books in my time, I know it's a very difficult business to be in, and I know that it's hard for publishers and authors, you know, to make the kind of money that they should for the work that they put in there. But also, you know, Amazon are proving themselves to be even more terrible than we thought, you know. I think there are very legitimate questions to be asked of their business practices, of the and why they don't pay the taxes that they should. And I know, I mean, they're not the only ones, but, you know, they're just in the spotlight here a little bit. And on top of all of that, on top of all of that, I don't know if you saw the story this week, apparently they're emerging as a main contender to uh, get the naming rights for Spurs' new stadium. I mean, come on. We can't, we can't get behind that. We can't support that. 
And here's the good thing about shopping local. Your local independent bookstore, and regardless of where you are in the world, unless you are completely and utterly uh, in the middle of nowhere or, or very much isolated, there is more than likely a local independent bookstore near you who would be quite happy to take your business, to order the Arsene Wenger book for you, to have it in stock on the day you want to go collect it. Everyone's thinking it's, it's convenient now to get it delivered. Maybe in October when the book comes out, we'll all be dying to go for a walk and go and, uh, you know, go outside the house and pick up a book, even. And still, they will probably deliver it to you. And here's the best thing about it. You get the book. The local independent business gets your money. That money goes into their coffers. If they're profitable, and hopefully they are, they pay their taxes, they pay their staff. The staff spend their money. The taxes go back into the system. And you don't feed a tax-dodging behemoth of a company like Amazon. And at a time when we're all looking at our health services, whether it's uh, the NHS or wherever it is that you live, the HSE here in Ireland, and we're looking for funding and we're looking for support, the simplest, best way you can do that is to spend your money with companies who pay their taxes and do the right thing. So if you're looking for the Arsene Wenger book, which comes out in October, there's loads of time to to call up your local shop and to, uh, to order it from them and still get your book. And it'll be a great book and a great read and you can be even more content that you have it because you know your money is going back into the into the economy which helps fund public services blah 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 it's a small thing but maybe it's something we need to consider about not just books but lots of ways in which we spend money because lots of small businesses and cafes and and what have you are going to need us when this thing is eased off or, or, you know, when things start to get back to normal. I know there's a convenience factor and everything else. Stuff gets delivered the next day or same day or whatever it is. But there's a cost, isn't there? There is a cost to society for that. And if uh, one of the ways we can change in the future is to is to do things a little differently and spend our money a little differently and help local businesses and businessmen and staff and employees, we can try and do that as much as possible. I'm not saying you have to, but you know, you could consider it. You could consider it. Speaking of spending money and wages and player wages and football clubs and all that kind of stuff, it has been one of the big talking points of the week, leaving aside the coronavirus, you know, player wages, should they take player, should they take pay cuts? Should they take player cuts? Yes, you can have 17% of this Mustafi. We'll cut him into little bits and you can have him. No, you know, the wages that they earn and deferrals and, you know, who should be responsible for the wages at a football club, particularly when you've got super rich owners. Lots of discussion about it, lots of debate, and with me on this week's show to talk about all that and lots more, including about when football might come back and is is the prospect of finishing the Premier League before June the 30th a mere pipe dream. Delighted to welcome back to the show from the New York Times, it is Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. Hi, mate. How are you doing? I am all right. Let's start, and let me ask, sorry, I didn't ask how you were. How are you and how are you holding up at the moment? Yeah, fine. I mean, it's, um, I, f- I mean, obviously, like the experience of lockdown is really different for everybody. I think um, I'm really lucky. So I have a I work from home anyway. Uh, we've got a little boy, a two year old. We're used to having him around, uh, and we have a garden. Mm. So he kind of has space to roam. Just two year two year olds are very busy people. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm not in that in that kind of bracket of people who are trying to trying to find things to watch on Netflix. We're not. That's not quite our experience of lockdown. As I'm working, and, and mm. obviously uh, the little one dominates. Uh, but equally, uh, we're very grateful not to be in a flat or in a city mm. uh, without any outdoor space. So, we, yeah, we're we're kind of counting our blessings to an extent. Okay. More importantly, how's the dog? Uh, the dog is fine. The dog's <laughs> actually having a whale of a time uh, in lockdown because he's he's getting on a strict rotor because there are there are rules about this. But he is getting quite a lot of attention and quite a lot of walks. So yeah. he's um he's doing all right. Oh, that's good. Uh, I've actually thought about renting him out because I've I've got this theory that if you're walking a dog you're unlikely to be told to go home because it's fairly obvious what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking that if, you know, if, if this continues for a while, I could maybe get him to start paying his way. Well, that's it. You know, pivot from journalism into dogs, a dog rental. <laughs> How's uh, your dog? <laughs> uh, both of them are, are fine, actually. Yeah, they're they're a little, because they're big and uh, they usually go up the mountains and we're sort of restricted in terms of how far we can go from the house. They're a little bit bored of walking around the area and, and what have you. But, you know, they're, they're a good excuse for us to get out and keeping us fit yeah. and everything else so from that point of view i'm very thankful uh for them and their demanding nature so <laughs> you know yeah it's good because otherwise it would be really really easy to just sit around 
and grow large with food. Um, yeah, which isn't to say that's not already happening, you know. No, it's um, it's uh, well to be honest. I think my dog's getting a bit fat, you know, but um, right. which is odd, because he's 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 walking possibly more than normal. But yeah, no, it's I guess the bit of the dog. If you're used to that kind of full-on country expanse, then yeah, then after a while, just kind of the local parts will, will not cut it, and they they will start to look at you as if to say, why why are you doing this to me? And you can't explain lockdown to a dog. No, it's true, it's true. And like you know, the, the, if they're really in, they're they're funny dogs, German shepherds. Like if they're interested in something, they're full of energy, they're full on. But if they don't want to do something, like if they don't want to walk around the block, it's like. It's almost like they sort of, oh, no, leave me. You go. You go on without me. I can't. I can't take another step. All of a sudden, a cat runs across and they're like, I'm going to kill it. You know, and all of a sudden, they find this energy to pull you down the road after the cat. You know, so it's, um, yeah, they're quite funny in that regard. But yeah. Well, ours is a spaniel, so he just has this kind of zest for life. Oh, yeah. Times. And a big engine. He's, They've got big engines. Yeah, a big engine. Just, it will need to be run and just wants to <laughs> sniff and explore and it, at, at all times. If you if you put a pair of trousers on, if you get getting dressed in the morning, you put a pair of trousers on, he takes that for some reason as a cue that he's getting a walk. Right. Which makes it really hard to get dressed. <laughs> you got to hide, get dressed surreptitiously somehow. And, and <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, you know, these are challenges none of us thought we'd ever have to deal with, but uh, here we are. Um, and one of the other challenges that we're dealing with is the lack of football and, and everything else. But to the fore, uh, this week has been discussions and debates and uh, arguments about players and player wages and their responsibilities towards football clubs and, and everything else. At, at Arsenal, there's quite a specific thing going on because it's being played out in public much more than it is at other clubs, because I'm sure discussions are going on between clubs and players uh, across the Premier League, and few of them have um, really come to any definitive conclusions just yet. There was a story in the week about how the Premier League were uh, proposing across the board 30% pay cuts for players, and the players went kind of ballistic at that. Um it is a weird kind of um it's a weird topic to broach because footballers are seen as uh, extremely wealthy which of course they are they they live a, a very nice life privileged life they get paid an awful lot of money and and it's very easy to say well at a time like this when everyone else is suffering financially when jobs are being lost when when people are being furloughed etc cetera, etc cetera, um though no longer at some of the premier league clubs who are doing that um you know they they should take a cut they should be the first ones you know to step up and do their bid and take a pay cut and, and everything else uh, and on the surface of it, that sounds an entirely reasonable thing, but it is a far more complicated issue, isn't it? Because when you look across the Premier League at football clubs um, outside of the Premier League, um, you know, the ownership structures at, at different clubs make it a different issue. So, for example, uh, at Chelsea, where there's a billionaire owner, uh, like there is at Arsenal, um, it's much more difficult to to talk about pay cuts uh, as opposed to a club like Bournemouth or Norwich, for example, which doesn't have this rich benefactor and all the individual aspects that, that are at play there. So, I mean, your thoughts on, on just the way footballers and footballers' wages have been in the spotlight over the last few days? Yeah, I think I mean, it is a really complicated subject and it's it's far more complicated than kind of politicians want it to be because obviously it, is, it makes for an easy soundbite and that's why we've seen the, seen politicians latch onto it so quickly is because it's it's solid ground for them it's something they they can have a this is this is it's really easy to see, to see which way the wind is blowing on it and to position yourself with the kind of the general morass of the population i think it's it's been really badly handled is the, is my that's my main kind of view on it i think is that it's it's a conversation that clubs have had across europe and it's it seems to have been a lot more kind of toxic and a lot more complex in england than it has been anywhere else. And why that is, is, is open to interpretation. I, I, w- I think partly it's to do with the perception of wealth in the Premier League, and the players aren't immune to that. They, they have spent years celebrating their wealth in a way that other leads tend not to. Individual clubs might, but other, cl- other leads don't as a kind of collective unit. Mm. And so I think when it's come to it, people from the outside have thought, well, you've all got so much money, why on earth would you need to furlough? And you think, well, they need to furlough the same reason that any company that turns over 500, 600 million quid a year needs to furlough, and that's to protect jobs. That's what that, that whole scheme is about. Um, in the grand scheme of things, football clubs are not vast companies. We think of them as being these kind of titan, titanic sort of industrial giants, but they're mm. not. They're, you know, 
apart from maybe the top six or seven, they're, they're kind of out of town supermarkets. Basically, that's the kind of that's the the financial reality of, of, of their life. They are, you know, you'll, you'll have car dealerships that turn over far more than a Premier League football club does, and even Manchester United, which is this, we think of it as being this huge kind of equivalent of like Nissan or Toyota or Goldman Sachs, it's not. It's a, I think it's classified by economists as a medium-sized enterprise, and that's that's fine, and the, but it's a real kind of psychological shift for fans and especially for non-fans to have had 20, 25 years of this celebration of, you know, the Premier League as one of Britain's great cultural exports, as one of its boom industries, as this kind of money-soaked machine, for it to then turn around and go, actually, do you know what, that was all, it was all a bit of an act, and re- really, we're, we're relatively small companies, and we need a bit of help here to stave off these losses. Um, but the big problem, and it's actually shown in, in my answer to this question, which is also long, long rambling and incoherent, <laughs> which has been the nature of the argument. The big problem, I think, has been kind of conflating all these unrelated issues. So, whether the clubs should have furloughed is unrelated to whether the players should donate to the NHS. Mm. Whether the whether the players should take a pay cut is actually unrelated to whether the players should donate to the to the NHS. They're all kind of they're all separate. They're all valid subjects. They're all things that that needed addressing and would have been addressed. But because they've been to some extent accidentally by a media trying to kind of review the whole situation as it stands, and to some extent cynically by by the clubs by the PFA particularly rather than the players and by the by politicians they've been deliberately conflated i think you you've got this situation where the players basically feel as though they are being made the scapegoats and they're being asked not only to don- donate to the nhs which i think they would broadly speaking do fairly willingly i well, don't they have haven't they i mean they they they've put together yeah. the, the players together um fund or the whatever fund and you know. they did that before anyone kind of intervened and put any pressure on them. Mm. And I think even if Matt Hancock, the health secretary, hadn't come out and said, it's time for them to do to play their part, and Julian Knight, a Conservative MP, who has written a book on tax avoidance, um, <laughs> calling on them to kind of donate to the... I mean, I don't even know how you, how you donate to the NHS. I mean, I presume to an extent that just means giving money to the government. And we should all be absolutely clear, it's not footballers' jobs to, p- to pay for the NHS. That's yeah. not how the taxation system works. The footballers already pay for the NHS because they pay tax. And it's the government's job to make sure the NHS is correctly equipped, which it's not. And that's not like David Louise's fault. It's not, sure. it's not on, there's a lot of things that are on David Louise, but, it's, but the, <laughs> the state of the NHS is not one of them. And I think that's been confused with the kind of the bit that football should have responded to initially was, was making sure it, it didn't take government money. There's mm. no real reason for football to take government money because although they are eligible for that scheme and although they are medium-sized enterprises, they are unlike medium-sized businesses or most medium-sized businesses in that they have assets they can A, dispose of if they need to cover a black hole in the future. You can sell a player. Or B, you've got these incredibly high-earning individuals right at the top who can take a pay cut for a bit to cover that. So I'm really surprised that unlike in Germany... Clubs didn't, within the first week or two, come out and say, right, the players have taken a 10, 15, 20% cut, which means we can pay everybody else in full. Because that's a really easy PR win, Mm. and it means the clubs don't have to go to the government. That would have been the first thing to do. And at that point, I I don't see why you couldn't then talk to the players and say, right, we need to kind of, almost on a sliding scale, we need you to kind of take a bit of a hit here to play your part to help the club get through it. We'll shoulder some of the burden. Mm. You, you can shoulder some of the burden because you can afford to and you don't actually need this money. Um, and we'll do that on a sliding scale depending on how long the shutdown lasts. So if, if it went on for two months, maybe you take a sort of, I don't know, a 10% pay cut. But if it's three, it might have to be 20. And if it's longer than that, it might have to be 30. Mm. And I th- again, I think the players would have agreed to that eventually, as long as they felt it worked for them, because they wouldn't have felt as though the owners were trying to trick them into taking a pay cut under the guise of helping out the country, when in fact what they were doing was staving off the losses for the clubs themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, B- benefiting the and owners. the way it's gone is that nobody trusts anybody else. And it's, it, this isn't a fully formed thought, because I only had it this morning, and it takes me about two or three weeks to actually get from like basic idea to intelligent comment. But we've talked for, for a long time about how, how little loyalty there is in football and how it, it, it makes, makes it seem as though the players are mercenaries. But I do wonder now whether it's actually that the players kind of have a point that their clubs are not, are not, can't be relied on to look after them at all times. The club's best interests are not the players' best interests all of the time. And that's why players relatively easily pick up and leave 
when they feel that the situation has changed. And I think that's maybe been highlighted, that schism between club and player. Mm. I mean, clubs will get rid of players at the drop of a hat. As soon as a player is deemed not um, not worthy or, or not useful, they're let go or they're sold or, or whatever it might be. And I think we'll come back to the owners and I want to talk just specifically about Arsenal a little bit, but just in terms of the process and the way that this has been... The way that this has been... Uh, communicated from owners to players at Arsenal, for example. We have a uh, uh, Hector Bellerin, who is uh, uh, a right-back, 24 years of age, great fashion sense, but as far as I know, has no qualification in uh, financial matters or trade unionism. And as the sort of PFA representative, he is being communicated to by... Uh, the PFA and also the club and being asked to take things to his teammates um, to get them to agree or disagree or or whatever they they want to do with this. It doesn't seem to me like this is the right way to address an issue which is so complicated because you are talking about trust with owners. You are uh, you do have players. Let's say a guy who's who was going to be leaving Arsenal this summer and knows fine well that he was going to be leaving Arsenal this summer because the club don't want him anymore. All of a sudden is being asked to take a cut in wages to benefit the club that don't want him anymore. You know there are all these kind of issues that are going on um i know it's a difficult time at the moment it's it's kind of hard to get people round a table because of social distancing and isolation and quarantine and all of those things but it feels to me like the way these things have been communicated to the players have um have not helped in any way um to no, put I it think, mildly I think- I think that's absolutely right. I think a lot of it is a failure of communi- a failure of communication. I actually, my my colleague Tarek Panja, who does kind of our sports mm. sports business side of things, tweeted uh, this week to say that that it's actually staggering the the contrast between how the Bundesliga and La Liga in particular uh, have communicated throughout this as as institutions and how the Premier League has communicated. And you know, have you, you can barely get Javier Tebas, who's who's the equivalent of Richard of what Richard Studemore was. At La Liga, you can barely get him away from like a press rostrum. He's he seems to be giving press conferences four or five times a day, mm. and it just sort of this endless talking. And Tebas is a bit of a blowhard, and he's he's not a lovable figure. But at least they're communicating their position. Christian Seifert, who's the very impressive head of the Bundesliga, he's he's spoken fairly frequently, not as much as Tebas. You've not heard peep from the Premier League. Yeah. No one has no one has has spoken at all in a kind of they put out these statements every week or every two weeks once they've had their meetings. But there is no actual guidance. And what's filling the void there are off-the-record briefings, which some of which will be valid and all of which are kind of newsworthy. But because they're off-the-record, we can't interrogate their, their motivation. So who, who are these chairmen and these executives who are speaking and giving these, these views on shaping the conversation around what should happen to the season? When, when, and, what, and what is their interest in doing that? Why, why do they think that? We need to know that stuff. That's important. Um, and that's mapped out down to the negotiations with the players, that you you kind of have the players in the Premier League seem to have basically taken it into their own hands as they felt the PFA were not representing their their interests mm. quite as precisely as they might have done. And now the PFA, the PFA have a tricky job because they, they also have to take into consideration the much more serious situation of what happens to players in League 1 and League 2. That's, that's the PFA's real sort of core business, is protecting those players who who by most standards are probably earning decent money, they'll be 50, 60, 70, 100 grand a year, which is a lot of money, well above the average. Um, but equally, it's not, it's not enough to live on forever when you have to retire at like 33. Mm. You need to, they need to maximise their earnings. Those players can't really afford to take a 30% cut indefinitely. Um, and the PFA's interest is in, is in protecting both the Premier League and, and League Two, and that makes it a really hard balance to strike. But I think we've seen throughout this that perhaps the PFA is maybe not not unfit for purpose, although I think Gordon Taylor is unfit unfit for purpose, but maybe the the interests and the requirements of players at the different levels are now so sort of wildly differing that perhaps you need some sort of separate body for the Premier League. Um, but yeah, you, you're running these conversations from executives who are self-interested through a union that doesn't have a clear kind of manifesto. And I think a lot of players at the Premier League will have very little in the Premier League, will have very little interaction with on a day-to-day basis, it's not, it's not a trade union in the in the in the sense of the, of like the NUT or the 
the mine workers or the the RMT who represent the tube drivers. It's not kind of a union that me- where membership is kind of an active thing. Like they're in the PFA, mm. but I think in normal times, most Premier League players will have they, they might vote for the player of the year once a year, but that'll be roughly the only time they actually go to the PFA. And even then, I don't think the players take that desperately seriously. So it's not a union they kind of engage with. They don't feel particularly represented by that. And then you're running it through players who, as you say, like Hector Bellerin's a really intelligent man. Mm. He's a really bright guy. He's got really sort of strong views on a lot of really important subjects. He's as good a PFA rep as you could probably hope for. But how is he qualified to to know whether the, this financial settlement that these executives have, have offered to the players as a whole, which, as you say, doesn't suit every player's circumstance, is the right thing to do. It's, 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 it's an unfair burden on those players. And I do wonder, actually, in the States, all of the, and it's not a subject I'm an expert on, but all of the, the, the professional sports, the athletes themselves have a collective bargaining agreement, yeah. which is renegotiated every few years. And that covers not only pay, but things like rights and working conditions, all that stuff. And you do wonder now whether we maybe need to look at something like that for the Premier League to say that all of the all, that all of the Premier League players every year will sign up to this collective bargaining agreement that maybe doesn't because we don't have things like salary caps and stuff. But. Yeah. Well, I was gonna I was gonna come to that actually, and I'll I'll come back to it. But just just in terms of the individual players and the way that this process has gone, you know, we know they're not financial experts. They might be rich young men, but they're not necessarily financial experts, and they have uh, uh, agents and financial advisors and managers and all those kind of things. And and the attempts, I think, to circumvent that advice from those people by the clubs hasn't gone down particularly well either, has it? Well, no, and the, the problem here has actually been that, that the Premier League's decided on this collective model and that, that basically there has to be a one-size-fits-all rule. And I just, I don't think, I think it should have, again, I don't want to give advice as this is a complicated subject, but, and I, I wouldn't want to pretend that I kind of know the answer, but it, it does strike me, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, that that was never going to work. And I don't really understand, you know, we've seen Southampton and West Ham now agree deferrals rather than cuts with their players which is a bit of a cop-out, to be honest. The players should, the players should be taking cuts. There's no reason for them to, to defer those wages. Um, that's just storing up a problem for the clubs in the future when they still don't know when the season's going to finish or if the season's going to finish. Um, but the, I don't understand why it had to be collective. And I think that actually gets at the heart of one of the other issues, which is the clubs themselves don't trust each other. So if you have one club who, who says, right, we need, we need to go for a 50% cut for two months because we don't have... A, you know, a nation state backing us, mm. and another club that says, "Well, we can get by with twenty percent for for a month because that that'll cover everything else, and we'll be all right after that." Don't worry. Then the clubs are thinking, "Well, hang on, Club B there might have a bit of an advantage over Club A, and they might be able to go to the place and say, look how badly the you know the, your your employer treated you. Why don't you come and play for me?'" Mm. And you get players who are unhappy, and I think that is the problem that the or that's one of the problems, that the clubs don't trust each other's motivations in doing it. So they decided, right, we've got to have this collective thing. It's just made it infinitely harder, because even within clubs, you'll have players who are in vastly different situations. In the championship, the the way they've done it, or some clubs have done it, is that they've basically instituted a wage cap. So I think at Leeds and Brentford, it's about five, six grand a week. They've said, we will pay you up to that, but after that, it's gone. Which is a much more sensible way of doing it, because if you're a... I'm trying to think, if you're Saka... You're, you're, I, don't know, I don't know exactly how much he's on, and it will be a lot of money. It won't be, you know, he's not going to be on peanuts, but it will be 15, 20 grand a week, maybe. He's on three so grand a week, actually, Saka. Is he on three grand a week? Yeah, he's on a fairly, you know, his first professional contract that he signed, yeah. you know, at 17, whatever it was. Even for that, that seems um, slightly tight. Arsenal should give him a pay rise. He's really good. Um, yeah. But the... the uh, that's a bit of a risk. But yeah, so it's, well, exactly, it's a great example then. So if you're Bukayo Saka and you're on three grand a week you and you're told you've got to take a 30% pay cut, that is actually a fairly substantial amount of money relative to how much you earn. Mm. Whereas if you're, if you're Aubameyang and you're on, you know, up to, towards 100 grand a week plus, the, mm. far more than that, in fact, up to kind of 200 grand a week, yep. and you're told it's a 30% pay cut, you, you genuinely won't notice that. Like, that will not make a difference to you but for Saka it's a, it, that's a substantial amount of money so you can't have an across the board sort of right it's a 30% cut for everybody that, that is punishing the lower earners even though they're earning quite, you know, three grand a week is still quite a lot of money that, that's punishing the lower earners more than it's punishing the higher earners and that's yeah. completely ridiculous so the, the idea of a wage cap I think works much better to say right we're going to pay no more than £30,000 a week which is 
enough money for everybody to be getting by, if we're all completely honest. Which means that players less than that, learning less than that, aren't hit at all. And they're the ones who are more likely to be vulnerable. And the players who are earning far more contribute, contribute far more, which makes far more sense. But you can only do that on a club-by-club basis. You can't do it sort yeah. of imposed top-down by the Premier League. And the, um, the, the, this insistence on having a collective approach... I think has just d- delayed the whole process by about a month, six weeks. And then you've had this lack of leadership from within the Premier League where no one is really prepared to come out and, and talk about what, what the hell is going on. And that has kind of created this vacuum that's been filled by all these whispers and these innuendos and these suggestions. Mm. It's allowed the politicians to get involved. It's got the players' backs up effectively. And it's made it a far more toxic environment than it needs to be. And it's, it's bizarre that we, we've spent so much time talking about kind of football's role in this crisis when the reality is that football has absolutely no role in this crisis. Yeah, it's This true. is nothing to do with football. Yeah. We were told at the start, you know, fo- got to cancel the football because football doesn't matter. You still get people now saying, oh, football doesn't matter at all because it's it's just a silly sport and there's something really serious going on. And that's true. It is just a silly sport and there is something really serious going on. In which case, why are you all talking about football so much? <laughs> that's a good point. And, like, I, I, I do think... Um, you know the the spotlight on footballers and and what they earn throughout this crisis has been a, a very handy distraction for some, and it, it's it's sort of an easy win to make if you're going to say footballers get paid too much, we should cut their wages. You know, on the face of it, nobody's going to disagree with that, but you've got to look into you know the nuts and bolts of it, and like you say it. Uh, every individual club circumstances are going to be different for players and the circumstances are going to be different at, at at different clubs. So some clubs have very wealthy owners who, if they wanted to, could cover the wages at a football club without any problem whatsoever. And I include Arsenal in that, even though Arsenal is run as a self-sustaining business, etc., etc. Stan Kroenke is worth somewhere between 9 and $11 billion, which is a vast and hugely obscene amount of money. I did some back-of-the-matchbook calculations today that if a uh, 12.5% pay cut was um, rolled out to all the playing staff um, and then the 20% pay cut was uh, a 30% pay cut that the executives uh, made sure everyone knew that they took yesterday was rolled out. You know, the club is saving essentially 22, 23 million pounds, which is what, half a half decent midfielder in the transfer market as we knew it. You know, if Stan Kroenke wanted to, if he wanted to, and think about the, the the PR win he would have by saying today, every single employee at my football club, and they are employees, whether you're working in the back office, whether you're a secretary, whether you're a groundskeeper, whether you're a photographer, whatever you are, you're an employee of the football club, and that includes the players. If he says every single employee of this football club will get paid their wages in full for the next 12 months, you know, it's costing him Twenty to twenty-five million pounds. Um, you know that's a big win for him to make if he were so inclined to do that. And there's been some suggestions that footballers uh, and some of the players at Arsenal are a bit wary of the owners, and they want to be sure that if they take pay cuts, that though the the money that's being saved is being used to pay the salaries of lower paid employees at the club etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know how do we how do we um come to terms with the fact that employees are being asked to save other employees at a football club when the owner is as wealthy as he is if it's a small medium uh, business a mom and pop store or whatever and everybody takes their cut for the benefit of everyone else we can all see how that works but when there's a guy at the top who's got so much money that you can't even count it, it's a, it's a different thing regardless of what players earn. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that, it, that in certain cases, the clubs that are owned by these sort of uber-wealthy individuals, companies, conglomerates or countries, that there is, there's certainly no reason for them not to pay the non-playing staff because the non-playing staff is going to be a tiny drop in the ocean really compared to to everything else that they have the wealth they can take their hit it's a really hard thing to do to like defend billionaires and it really doesn't come naturally but i i guess to some extent you know that wealth will be on paper it won't be sure it's not in, all in liquid yeah it's not like they have it's it in liquid. gold bullion yeah i get it but the the they will, I guess, look at it and think, well, look, do you know, we've taken a hit already because our investment, our, our asset is now worth many millions of pounds less than it was two months ago. So that, their view will be, and it's not one I share, but their view might be that they've taken, that's how they're taking their hit. Mm. But no, ultimately, it's basically indefensible that if you've got that money available, you, 
you can. I think it's personally, I think it's reasonable to ask players, particularly, particularly very highly paid players, sure, who are not working, to say, look, because the train with the training they're doing is apparently not classified by the government as work. Um, I personally feel that they should be paid in full because they are still working very hard in their role as national punching bags. Um, <laughs> that is that is part of their job, and they're still fulfilling it. Um, but I think it's it's not unreasonable to say to the players that you don't have to take a bit of a deferral or a cut just because we've got a cash flow issue here. I think sure. that's 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 fine. But yeah, there's, there is no reason that the that the owners shouldn't be at least backstopping some of it. I don't think it would be fair for the world to be subsumed by this crisis and these these billionaires at the top are saying, well, look, it's I don't want to have to suffer because because why should I? I think that that to be honest, well. A different conversation, but mm, yeah. the, um, I think that's been part of the problem for too long. That the, the people at the top never seem to think that they have a share of the responsibility when things go wrong. But yeah, there is. It's very hard to see why there is any legit, legitimate explanation for the for the billionaire owners of clubs. It's different, yeah. maybe for Norwich, where sure. where you're talking very rich individuals, but not not ones with bottomless pockets. Effectively, yeah. I mean, and I think that's why you know when Norwich furloughed, I don't think there was a huge amount of, of uproar. A lot of teams in the Championship have furloughed. They've all yeah. got very rich owners, but there's not that much uproar. Does people know? Look, this is. It's much easier for us to think actually that right, this business might need might need that that government help, um, but for the for the elite of the Premier League, it's it's unfathomable. And it, again, it just seems that everyone's trying to back themselves into an un, into an, un, an unnecessary corner when there were relatively easy solutions. I think to an extent, all the players want is to know that the clubs are willing to take a bit of the hit as well. That that, that the clubs are not exposing the players to the to the entirety of the blow. That the clubs are thinking. We will we'll we'll take on some of it. Don't worry. But if mm. you just do a little bit, you'll get the PR win. You 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 help us out a bit. You, you we've got this cash. There is a genuine cash flow problem within football. But then the flip side of that is that I do think the the economic damage that this is doing and will do is more serious than people are thinking. Even within football, I think there's an assumption that that once kind of once the restrictions are eased, they'll go back to training. I think that's fairly obvious. And then the plan seems to be that after a few weeks training, they will try and play the games in kind of July. And I think, and then maybe start of next year, fans will be back in the stadiums if, if everything goes to plan, if there's not a sort of really bad second wave, that they'll open the, we'll start doing mass gatherings at some point next year. And I think people are thinking, well, we'll it will all be normal from that point on. And I'm not convinced it will. I, I, I think the longer term damage is being under mm. underestimated. Mm. I, I agree, and I want to talk to you now about the potential um, financial implications for football going forward, just to make the point again that if people are angry and upset with footballers for not doing their bit, surely you've got to be angry with billionaires not doing their bit, regardless of whatever hit they might be taking to their balance sheet or their, their net worth uh, based on, you know, the investments that they made in, in businesses. And, you know, businesses have ups and downs and they fluctuate as owners of a business, as the owner of a business. That is a risk that you take. So, you know, footballers are kind of easy targets and we're conditioned not to look above that. We're conditioned not to talk about, you know, the, the people that own Starbucks or Google or Facebook or Apple or um, Amazon who systematically and um, very obviously avoid tax and don't pay and don't contribute what they should contribute to society. And I think maybe it's about time that changed. Um, let's think about... Well, that's, that's on that, though, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that, that's been massively un underplayed. Footballers pay loads, loads and loads and loads of tax. Yeah. They're all PAYE. It's, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary, really, that they, that they do get someone... Someone emailed me the other day and said, you know, I suspect most footballers don't know how much they earn on a monthly basis. And to be honest, there'll be quite a lot that don't really pay attention to what comes in on their payslip. But they all get payslips. They all get payslips from their club saying you have earned £800,000 this month minus £400,000 in tax, mm. effectively. They pay vast sums of money to the exchequer. And footballers and industry does as well. You know, there's all the other people it employs, all the all the wealth that it creates, all the jobs that are dependent on it, all the stuff in the supply chain, in the in the, in the logistics around football. It's a, it makes a lot of money. Football contributes to the health service, yeah, hugely in a way that the people who own football clubs, I'm guessing, don't. And it's it it has felt really sort of awkward that we've been having this conversation about people who've done that. Like, it's great that the players came up with the Players Together initiative. But they, they didn't really have to because 
as I say, they pay their tax. That's how they fund the NHS. They've already done quite a lot for the NHS by playing football and getting paid for it. I, I'm just looking at, uh, there was a um, one of those leaks a little while ago of, uh, I think it was Man City's payslips, and I'm looking at Carlos Tevez's purported payslip here, and his deduction for the month, um, his PAYE deduction was £330,766, with a national insurance deduction of uh, almost £8,000. So you know those are those are enormous sums of money that footballers are paying into the public coffers, and you can argue from here to eternity about how well they're being used or what have you. But you know there there is a direct contribution based on what they earn. Yeah, and if you think about how many players earn that sort of money, it's it's relatively few. It would be I don't know a couple of hundred maybe at most mm. who are on that kind of crazy money that we, we that we all find kind of. eye-watering and mind-boggling. If you think about people in the city, and bankers to an extent are an easy target as well, and I've got lots of friends who are bankers, or not lots of friends, I've got some friends who are bankers, and Mm. I know why they're an easy target, and I think it's entirely justified. But, um, and I enjoy making them an easy target. But there's a lot more than 200 people earning that sort of money in the city. Yeah. A lot more. And they're not being told that they should make extra contributions. Some of them will be. Some of them will be socially conscious. They will privately donate. They're They're not all kind of evil vulture squids. Vampire squids, that's Matt Taibbi's phrase. They're not all vampire squid. Yeah. Um, the, but a lot of them won't, and there's a lot more than 200 of them. And they're earning, they're earning footballer money. And I, I find it... And the, the, the other comparison that always comes to mind is like actors and musicians, and they all earn huge sums of money. People get paid like $25, $30 million a film. That's six months' work. Are they, are they, why aren't mm. they under pressure to, to contribute a bit more? Does that, and I don't want to sort of tar all of Hollywood with the same brush, but I'm guessing they're not paid PAYE, not least as I don't think there's a PAYE system in America. But, you know, if you're making a, if you're getting paid as a British actor a load of money to make a British film, I'm not sure you're doing it through through HMRC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I wrote a piece last week called uh, Ed Sheeran Should Do His Bit because he earned £120 million last year, but no one's saying Ed Sheeran should fund well, the no, NHS. And, and it may well be that, that as well as blessing us all with his wonderful music, <laughs> Ed, Ed Sheeran has got huge, he might do, I've no idea, but he's probably got a charitable foundation, he'll probably support loads of projects, and that's great, because I'm mm. sure he's a really nice bloke. But the difference is that there is no pressure on Ed Sheeran. Mm. Exactly. And there should, if there's going to be pressure on footballers, there should also be pressure on Ed Sheeran. You look tired. I take it the caffeine, toothpaste, and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry, because mattresses start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Looking ahead, when we you know talk about the issue of wages and when we look at the figures uh, and the amount of money that clubs are paying uh, in wages, it, it's long been mooted that um, a salary cap might be the way to go or might be a sensible way for football to operate. Um, you, you look at the finances, uh, our, our good friend Swiss Ramble did a great uh, thread this week about the impact of, of this on Premier League and, you know... He says the reality is football didn't look like a particularly healthy business even before coronavirus arrived. Uh, current Premier League clubs posted a combined £330 million loss with 12 of them losing money, uh, two of them uh, reporting deficits over £100 million, which were Everton and Chelsea. Chelsea, I think we can leave to, to one side and, and Everton uh, as well with a very wealthy owner nowadays. But FFP as a concept, I think, is, you know, a, a decent thing that a club should operate within uh, within its means or within the revenues that it can generate. You know, we, we like to think that this 
uh, or what's going on at this moment in time is going to, you know, change our perception on, on life, on society, what's important, how we operate, how we do things. You know, it, you know, I don't want to sort of sound opportunistic in in any way, but it, but is there a chance that the far side of this, some common sense is applied to finances in football, in terms of how football clubs are run, in terms of how football clubs operate, whether that's in the transfer market or, or what they pay their players. I really want to say yes. Mm. I really want to say that that what will happen is we will, partly through the clubs, the clubs realizing it themselves, partly through fan pressure, there will be a move away from this kind of spend, spend, spend culture that we all encourage. Fans, journalists, people in football, this kind of have it all now. Let's go and spend, you know, hundred million on a striker. Let's let's celebrate a signing like it's a cup victory. All that stuff that we might all think, actually, do you know what? I'd quite like my club to have a little bit more in reserve just in case that we need to sort of tamp down a little bit the spending, or the spending culture more than the spending, yeah, and and be a little bit more sustainable. I'd like to think that UEFA might use it, the fact that they're in a position likely through the kind of the money. So FIFA's got like $2.7 billion in cash reserves. It wants to function basically as a federal reserve for football to get clubs out of whatever the economic consequences are that money will be dispensed through the federations to the national associations and leagues, which gives gives you for quite a lot of power. I'd like to think they might use that power to kind of say to the clubs, right, you're now going to dance to our tune, because I know that UEFA, UEFA make unlikely good guys, but I, I think Alexander Seferin is quite an impressive character, and I think there's people within UEFA who have the best interest of the game as a whole at heart. That's not always the best interest of every club, and it's not always the best interest of every league, but I think what UEFA, UEFA generally do more good than they do harm most of the time in their current iteration. That mm. wasn't always true of previous uh, insti- uh, previous kind of regimes. UEFA could use it to to say, right, we're going to institute agent agents' fees caps, transfer caps, salary caps, squad limits, homegrown player limits. We're going, to re- we're going to give you an FFP holiday. They will relax FFP for the period covered by this, but there will be a form of FFP that returns that is non-negotiable. If you want to play in our competitions, then you will sign up to those to those rules. They could use this to kind of remake it, and the big one obviously would be they can go to the, the big clubs and say, look, if you think you're coming back to us and say, no, we want more Champions League places for the big five leads at any point in the next 20 years, you've got another thing coming. We're bailing you out. You'll, you'll do as you're told. And I think that could be a really positive there could be a really positive outcome for football from what is basically an enforced collapse, as uncomfortable as I am with that kind of genus of people who seem to be celebrating the bursting of the bubble, unaware that that you're kind of playing with people's livelihoods to an extent. And also kind of with like these massive emotional investments that a lot of us have made in, in football teams and in football as a sport. And I really wish that that would be the likely outcome. But I think far likelier is that what the football we're going to get in the next, say, five, ten years, because of this, we'll have an awful lot of clubs... Well, a lot of clubs who've gone to the wall, Mm. mostly lower down, but I think possibly one or two in the Premier League or in top flights across Europe as well. Um, I think you can have a lot of clubs who have vastly kind of narrowed horizons, who are concentrating much more on making sure their business model works and that they can survive and that, that they are not maybe as competitive as they wanted to be. And I think Arsenal fall into that category. I think Liverpool fall into that category. Uh, I think to an extent, even Manchester United and Chelsea fall into that category. They are basically all break-even businesses and they will have to function in such a way that allows them to cover up the losses that they have sustained. And how big those losses will be will depend to an extent on what happens with the season and what happens with the TV rights. I've greatly enjoyed... The, the idea in the last week or so that Sky might write off like 750 million quid for access to referees after games. Don't think that's desperately likely. Not sure that talking to Mike Dean's <laughs> worth quite that much. Um, the that's the big one, but there's all the other impacts. There's there's not the match day is important. Does it, the, the loss of six match days or whatever it is will push clubs from profit, small profits, into the opposite of profit, debt, whatever it is, loss, mm. loss. Um, there's going to be an impact on commercial revenue. We're about to enter a massive recession, which will mean that things like advertising spend will go down, uh, corporate spend will go down on various things, which means sponsorships are harder to come by and they're worth less. It means that sale, shirt sales and stuff will will reduce because people won't be buying as many, which means the net set of deals will be worth less than they were a year ago. 
that kind of exponential growth in in how much this is all how much money this all generates for the clubs will will go down. Corporate boxes won't be taken up nearly as much. The the cost of them will drop, which means you're impacting on the kind of on the corporate take for the clubs, which is actually quite an important revenue stream. Uh, you may start seeing that tickets don't sell quite as much because partly because people won't be able to afford them, they might have to, the prices might have to come down, but partly because a lot of season tickets are sold through external companies. Those external companies may not make it through. They might find that it's actually they have to get new new mechanisms in place by which to sell season tickets. And then the big one, the really big one, is if this goes on for a few months, if it's decided that you can't possibly play football behind closed doors and it's not safe to to play football until. I don't know, October, November, September, October, November. At what point does Sky and BT in this country and all of the other subscriber model TV stations that pay for football, what point do people start saying, actually, instead of pausing my subscription, I'm going to have to cancel this because I'm, I'm, I've had to take a wage reduction or I've lost my job or my wife's lost her job or my husband's lost his job. Mm. Everything, is, everything is much tighter. When, when we all have to tighten our belts, you look for what's necessary and ultimately... A 25, 50, 75 quid a month subscription to a satellite TV service is not necessary. You can get Netflix for, what, 11 quid a month, 15 euro, something like that. Mm. That's, that, there's, there's just as much entertainment on that as there is on Sky. And all right, you don't get your football, but it's cheaper. You might save yourself 30, 40, 50 quid a month. So there's going to be this massive contraction of the amount of money going into football. And I think what that will mean is that wages will have to come down, transfer fees will go down, most clubs will have to kind of accept smaller fees for players that they were hoping, you know, a player that you were hoping to sell for 50 million this summer or next summer might now only be worth 20, which is it's, enough, it's, it's good money, it's enough to keep you going, it'll, it'll help you survive, but mm. it won't let you reinvest that, the clubs lower down the food chain will, will be impacted, that applies all over the world, does the transfer market, someone described to me in Belgium, trying to write a piece on this at the moment, which is why I'm talking at such length about it, um, and someone in Belgium described, which is Belgium sort of sits in the middle, they find players and then they sell them on to, to bigger clubs. Yeah. The, 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 the transfer market is basically a solidarity mechanism, that, that it means money trickles down from the top to, to Leeds, through, through Leeds like Belgium and Portugal, but then on to Africa and into South America. And that's how that money is dispersed around the world. Um, if that freezes up, those clubs suffer. Um, and I think the big problem, well, not the big problem, but the reality is, the likelihood is that we will be left with a handful of clubs at the top with vast incomes and the ability to pick the carcasses of everybody else. And a lot of clubs, right in, right up to Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham, big clubs who are break-even businesses, who, ha- who are interested inherently in what their bottom line is, who really can't keep up. And I think we might see a bit of a fundamental shift towards, yeah, City, PSG... Possibly Real Madrid and Barcelona will be able to, to, to survive it, although the institutional chaos at Barcelona means that's quite unlikely. Uh, you might get a Saudi-owned Newcastle who suddenly <laughs> find that this is the time to, to invest, although that whole takeover is a very strange business. Um, it, I think it will realign football. Man United might be able to cope, but then Man United are a business that is designed to make money, and if they have a £100 million, £200 million shortfall in their income, then that will impact how much they can spend. Mm. Uh, and that's not true necessarily of, of clubs that have that are not owned exclusively to be business assets. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like, you know, there's going to be a great equalization, even if everybody is going to take a financial hit. With, you know, hence the, the, the idea that an FFP uh, system that is strictly and properly enforced might well do that. Um, but I suppose the other thing that I worry about a little is that it could precipitate something like a European Super League. But again, you know, we don't know quite how that will play out given the, you know, the the travel restrictions and everything else. Just, just the final thing I want to touch on because it is uh, a story that's um, doing the rounds this morning. Um, you know, the idea that Premier League clubs are pushing for the league to be completed before June 30th. And we can understand why that is the case, because there are legal contractual issues. Players who are going to be out of contract in, in June. Um, you know, that whole minefield is is weighing on their minds. Obviously, the financial implications of that, and it feels very much like it's an idea that 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 football and decision-making in football is being driven by the precarious nature of the finances and the need to, to play games, whether it's behind closed doors or anything else, just to get some of the money in. So it might assure the television money if, if, if that can happen. I mean, how do you see that playing out? Because, you know, th- this idea that 
all the games could take place over a short period of time, that 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 clubs and players and staff and officials and broadcasters and all these things could be put into these kind of um, isolation camps, if you like, um, to complete football for our entertainment and for our benefit. Um, you know, it really doesn't quite sit right with me. You know that we can we can test the players is one of the things that you say. You test the players and you make sure that they're constantly tested. And anyone who te- you know tests positive, you know you remove them. How do we how do we marry that with the reality that we're seeing that 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 nursing home staff looking after the most vulnerable people in our society, the ones who are most susceptible to COVID nineteen cannot get tested to find out whether they're positive, whether they're uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic, passing on the virus or not to to elderly people in nursing homes. You know, how can we justify footballers being tested en masse for our benefit, for our entertainment, when in real life people are dying every day from this uh, from this disease? Well, you can't, can you? You can perform some sort of kind of mental trickery uh, some sort of rhetorical flourish to say that it's it's a way of raising spirits in the nation, and I think to, to some extent there's a valid argument that if you put the football back on for the last few weeks of lockdown, it might help people get through a little bit. It might it might not be a terrible it might have some sort of social use there, but no, you can't justify testing. I'm actually I find it really hard to think of footballers' names. I've forgotten them all. Um, <laughs> like, how could you test Joel Linton like four times a week, but not staff in a nursing home? Yeah, it's it's morally abhorrent. And to an extent, this, this, this might be sort of hopelessly naive of me. I, I don't actually think it's necessary. I don't, I, I don't think all these stupid kind of biodome plans, they're having them in the States as well. Major League Baseball apparently wants to play in a biodome, which sounds, sounds very Mad Max Thunder Road, yeah. uh, to be honest. You can, I don't know. It's, um, it just seems, it seems not only far-fetched and a bit idiotic, but I think it's, the likelihood is it, it won't be necessary because at some point, I think the, the prediction seems to be kind of May-ish, they will start easing restrictions on the lockdown, not because of anything to do with football, but because, well, to be honest, I think you've probably got a limited amount of public consent for it. And at some point, you do need to, you do need to think, well, look, people need to work, people need to eat. And we have to kind of open li- little by little, taking a risk. And obviously, politicians can't say, look, we don't really know how this is going to work. We've never had to do this before. So what we're going to do is try and come out of lockdown as slowly and sensibly as we can, and we're going to keep. I think Angela Merkel said it this week that you know try and keep an eye on the on the rate of infection, which means you know how it's going, and and if it gets a bit too high, then you then you you squash restrict you put the restrictions back down or put mm. some of the restrictions back back down. And I think to me, what will happen is that that will come at some point in May. That there will be a kind of you know certain shops will be allowed to open, or more people will be encouraged to go back to work. They might reopen construction, something like that. Um, because because ultimately there is an, there is it's, it's, it shouldn't be dressed up as like some sort of horrid Tory thing to say, but there is an economic consideration. People die when the economy when the economy crashes, and the, it's the government's responsibility to manage that in as well as manage public health. Um, and I think the, the football clubs will push to return to training uh, at least as soon as the lock, as, the, as the, the the absolute restrictions are lifted, uh, which is what they're doing in Germany. I think it's what they're doing in Spain. Uh, and I, I think it's what they will do in Italy. They'll say, "Look, we can train. Let's, let's at least let let the players get back out on the pitch and run around." It's you, you're unlikely to transmit a virus if you're running around near each other. That's the, that's the reality of it. There is a risk, but it's minuscule. Um, and then they'll say, by July, if the situation is continuing to improve, if the, if the curve stays flattened, if the rate of infection stays low, we're going to play in July. I think trying to finish the season by the end of June is totally unrealistic. Um, and I think the part of the problem there is that because the Premier League hasn't communicated at all at an official level on the record facing questions, I think the conversation is being steered by executives who are briefing, usually anonymously. And they, they might have the best interest of the country at heart. Let's, let's, let's assume that they're all you know, open-hearted, considerate individuals who just, who just want people to get better. But we don't know because the chances are they are acting with... with utter self-interest. What we've seen in Scotland with the, the farcical vote on what to do with the, the lower tier seasons this mm. season, although not the Premier League for some reason, uh, the Premiership for some reason, um, is that the clubs have basically come out and said, we are voting according to our own interests. What else, what else are we meant to do? So you, you have to assume that those motivations are the same in the, 
in the Premier League where because of this vacuum of kind of leadership, clubs are saying, right, well, this is what we kind of want to happen. So let's put that out there and see how it feels. And maybe if we put it out there, other people will, ju- will join us. And it's a risky game because if you're, if you're Aston Villa and you're, you're thinking, right, we want the season voided uh, because that means we stay up, then you might, you might find that you get what you want with the season being cancelled. But if you look at Belgium and Scotland, they're both declaring the lead. They're not, they're not voiding because UEFA have made it clear that it, if there is no resolution to this season, there is a very good chance you're not being invited into the Champions League next season. And personally, I think that that's probably... I go back and forth on it a bit, to be honest. I think that's probably the, the, the slightly fairer thing because how on earth did you put Tottenham into the Champions League? They're eighth. And if you void the season, that's what you have to do. You say, right, we're going back to last season's standings. Yeah. Spurs are back in the Champions League. I, just, I don't see how that's a viable thing to do. Um, so you may, you may get what you wish for, but you have to be relatively careful on it. And I think the, that's a failing of the Premier League, that the Premier League by, by this stage should have come out, held some sort of press conference. I don't want to kind of in, over, like exaggerate the importance of journalists. Journalists aren't particularly important, but that is, that is the, the, way, the only way we have. It's the only mechanism we really have for people people who are in in the public eye to to face the interrogation of the country to come out and say right this is what we are vaguely intending to do but i think that the tone of the conversation around all of this in 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 england in particular has been i don't want to use this word but it's the only word i think of has been so stupid that i think the premier league feels cowed and like it can't you know when they kept putting dates on it which were very clearly to any intelligent person were very clearly placeholder dates to say, right, we know we will not be playing until, which is basically a way of saying to the managers, look, get your players onto a holiday schedule for this period of time. And then when we reach that pit, that point, we'll tell you what, what you can do next. But people sort of, you got all these these pieces, these comments, it's ridiculous the Premier League that they're going to be playing again on April, on April the 3rd. And you think, well, they, they don't. They, they really obviously don't think that. Like, they're not stupid. They, they're just saying that they're not going to play again until that date at the earliest, and then they'll, then they'll make a decision. It was obvious what they were doing, yeah. but the public discourse became so kind of distracted by the date that I think they've now stopped stopped wanting to put any date on it at all, which in some lights is sensible. But it means that that silence is filled by noise from people who have their own agendas, and I think that's really dangerous. I, there isn't a perfect way out of this for any industry, and there isn't a perfect way out of it for football. I think ideally you'd want to you'd want to play the games partly for the economic reason, partly because it's the only way of kind of maintaining any, any sort of semblance of sporting integrity. And partly, and I think this is really important, if next season's affected, I'm not sure that you can sustain two years of incomplete seasons. Because at what point do, people, do fans start saying, I don't know how much I want to invest in this emotionally, and I yeah. particularly don't know how much I want to invest in this financially. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so many layers to this as well, because whatever about Premier League clubs... Um, being able to play games behind closed doors. I think that puts pressure on other games being played behind closed doors. Um, Premier League cl- uh, clubs are probably better able to soak up the financial hit without the match day yeah. revenue, whereas you know clubs in, in the Championship, in League One and League Two are so much more dependent on that revenue. Um, you know, it, it's uh, We could keep talking for ages and ages and ages, um, and I'm very conscious that I've taken up way too much of your time already. Um, but maybe in you know three months' time when football hasn't begun again, we will have a better idea of, <laughs> of what's going on and we can come back and revisit this. For now, though, Rory, listen, thanks a million. Really appreciate it and always great to talk to you. It's always a pleasure, mate. Take care. Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter at Rory Smith, at Rory Smith, and you can read his stuff in the New York Times. Coming up this weekend, uh, nothing, I guess. But there you go. I mean, look, it's the same for all of us. We do what we got to do to uh, pass the time from one day to the next. So whatever you do, do it well, do it safely, stay healthy, stay well. Thank you as ever for listening. We really, really appreciate it. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arsecast Extra. So until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Hello, I stand before you today on behalf of the British government to give you an update on a situation which has, of course, been in the news, which is perplexing many. We are announcing that as of today, we are withdrawing our funding for Top of the Pops. The simple reason is we feel the entire thing is a con. Having studied the evidence, we have to ask the very, very serious question that if they could not find a cure for levels 1 through 41, how are we supposed to spend taxpayers' money on a vaccine for level 42? holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.